Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Amen. Amen. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a few weeks now, and um, we've been talking about how the Sermon on the Mount describes life in the kingdom of heaven. You want to know what life in the kingdom of heaven is like? Read the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know what life is like as a new creation in Christ? Read the Sermon on the Mount. It is the description of the kingdom of heaven. By now, I hope that this slide, uh, this diagram that's going to be on the screen, I hope that you're familiar with this image and this diagram. If you are, or if you're not, that's okay. We're going to go over it again today. And if you are, great. I ask that you defamiliarize yourself with it so that you can re-familiarize yourself with it. But basically, what this diagram is, is this is heaven and earth. It's a, well, it's a diagram that represents uh, heaven and earth. And the theme of Matthew, as we've been exploring, is this theme of kingdom of heaven. You can't read a chapter in Matthew without reading the word king, kingdom, or the whole phrase kingdom of heaven right? It's used over 50 times in the gospel according to Matthew. So we've been exploring what does this look like? And this is a diagram of the overlap between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. We've been exploring what that, what's John the Baptist's first message? John the Baptist's first sermon in Matthew chapter 3 is what? Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. What's Jesus's first sermon? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come come near. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of heaven a lot. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And heaven, the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew, is not merely a place that you go to after you die, but it's rather the reign and the rule of God right here, right now in our lives. Look at what this quote from R.T. France says, and this will be on the screen. To enter the kingdom of heaven does not mean to go to a place called heaven, but rather to come under God's rule, to become one of those who recognize his kingship and live by its standards to be God's true people. In other words, I, Parker Goldrick, where am I right now? Am I, in, am I in heaven? As in like, am I in the resurrection of the dead in the Garden of Eden with God's presence in streets of gold? No, I'm here in Kirkendale Public Library in Ankeny, Iowa, right? But am I in the kingdom of heaven as a disciple of Jesus? Yes. This is what we explored last fall in the letter to the Philippians. Paul says, you're citizens of heaven. Well, yeah, but I live in Philippi. I live in Ankeny. Well, you do, but you don't. So entering the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that you're you're now in the place called heaven. There will be a time when those two things, we'll get to that in a second, when those two circles overlap, right? But what does it mean right now? It means right now that the kingdom of heaven is present and available for us right now. It means to come under God's rule, to become one of those who recognize God's kingship, not the kings that we put on our hearts, not my own, myself, recognize God's kingship, live by the kingdom's standards, and be God's true people. So the question is, how do we do that? Well, the answer is simple and yet profound. We put Jesus' teachings to practice. We, put Je- we obey, we trust and obey. We put Jesus' words into practice. It looks like what the Beatitudes describe, a life of happiness, flourishing, contentment, even when, and even though, and rather especially when, and especially though, you're poor in spirit. It looks like putting the needs of others above the needs of yourself. 
It looks like practicing spiritual disciplines regularly in order to give us what Philippians 2 calls the mind of Christ. It looks like forgiving others when they don't deserve it. This is what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. It looks like assuming the best in people, knowing that they're made in God's image, rather than assuming the worst in people. It looks like having a heart posture that is humble, not one that is proud. It looks like vulnerability, confession, honesty, openness, which looks like accountability, letting other people in your life, allowing them to poke and prod because you want to glorify God. You want to live on earth as it is in heaven. It looks like freedom. It looks like freedom from sin, freedom from anxiety. It looks ultimately, what, is the, what does life in the kingdom of heaven look like? It looks ultimately like Jesus, right? And, and who is Jesus? Jesus is God. And what is the chief characteristic of God across all the scriptures? God is love. To live in the kingdom of heaven right now is to follow the Holy Spirit and become a person of love, to become like Jesus, And so the last few weeks we've been exploring this. Jesus has um, started his ministry after um, after he was baptized. He went into the wilderness and he was tempted and he passed the test. And then he started his ministry and one scholar says that Jesus started his ministry with all the wrong people. Right? Like if you think of Jesus like, hey, I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven. I'm gonna go to the movers and shakers of the world. And Jesus just started it with all the wrong people. He went to the outcasts of society. He went to this no-named town or village, whatever. And, and then, then we saw at the, before the Sermon on the Mount, we had, he had a crowd following him, right? They were um, uh, afflicted, those who had diseases, those who were suffering from intense pains, those who were demon-possessed, those who were epileptics, those who were paralytics. This is the crowd that Jesus starts his ministry with. He calls four fishermen, no-named people, just on the shore, just fishing. And they immediately, what do they do? They immediately follow him. This is, how, this is who he's proclaiming this sermon to. He started the sermon with the Beatitudes, and we've explored those the last few weeks. And they're very upside down. One, uh, somebody came up to me a few weeks ago, and he's like, I, I just don't, I just don't, get, like it doesn't make sense. The Beatitudes, they just, it, it doesn't make sense. Happy are those who are not happy. Like how does that make sense? And that's it right there. That's the upside down kingdom. How can you be blessed when you're mourning, when you're persecuted, when you're uh, hungering and thirsting for God to make the wrong things right, when you're humble, slash meek, slash powerless, when you're mourning, how, how can you be blessed, happy, content, flourishing? That's the question. That's the question. And Jesus says, this is what life in the kingdom looks like. Then he goes on, and what we talked about last week was as a as a new human in the kingdom of heaven, you actually are the salt and the light of the world. You purify the world by your living, and you also bring light. You bring God's revelation to the world. One illustration um, that uh, I heard, and I, I thought it was really good, is, is um, living life in the kingdom of heaven while also in earth is kind of like if you went to London and you started driving in the right you drove with what we're familiar with. You drove in the right side of the street. Like if you've ever been to London or India or Australia or a few other countries, they drive on on the incorrect side of the street, right? They drive on the left side of the street. And imagine you go to London and you get a rental car and you go into the the driver's side 
door and you sit down and there's no steering wheel in front of you, right? It's, it's a really disorienting. You're like, oh, okay, yeah. So you have to go. And if you've been driving for some time, you don't even think about driving anymore. You're just like, oh, right turn. Your hand just goes up. Your left hand just goes up because you know where the blinker is and you know where the pedals are and all that stuff. Now imagine actually flying to London, getting a rental car and learning to drive opposite of what you know. Very disorienting, very upside down very weird and strange. What Jesus is saying, oh, and it takes a lot of intentional effort. You have to be very intentionally uh, cognizant of what you're doing, right? A right turn in England would be really, really hard and a roundabout, I can't even imagine driving in a roundabout in London. It would be very difficult. You have to be very intentional. You have to intentionally put forth effort to change, to, to, to rethink how you thought you knew how to drive, right? What Jesus is saying is that life in the kingdom of heaven, there are some things that we do in life before the kingdom of heaven that we just have to completely think opposite. We, we are trained to think bigger is better, up and to the right, go, 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 go. And we get into the kingdom of heaven and Jesus is actually like, yeah, the way that you lead is by serving others. The way that you live is actually by dying for others. The way that you're successful, we're gonna see what's greatest in the kingdom of heaven is actually becoming, lead. the first are last and last are first. That's life in the kingdom of heaven. And it takes what? Intentional effort to train our minds, to train our bodies, to train our reactions. In the kingdom of heaven, the knee-jerk reaction is not impatience, but love. And that's possible. It's possible because God has given us what? His Holy Spirit to make it possible. This is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to know what the kingdom of heaven looks like, read the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know what the kingdom of heaven looks like, look at Jesus. And so because it's, it's different and it takes intentional effort, we naturally are going to be what? We're naturally going to be salt and we're naturally going to be light. Which leads us to today's passage where Jesus uh, continues his sermon and it's, it's in verse 17. And um, we're just going to walk through it um, verse by verse, talk about it, and then um, respond in taking uh, communion together. So look at verse um, Look at chapter five, verse 17. This is Jesus talking after he talks about the Beatitudes, the salt and light. Then he says this, verse 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Okay, if, if, if Jesus has to tell people, don't think this thing, odds are, what? They're thinking that thing, Right? Most of Jesus' conflicts with the Pharisees are the Pharisees saying, hey, you're doing this wrong. You're abolishing the law. So Jesus is preemptively saying like, guys, I, I, you think that I'm doing this. I'm not doing this. I did not come to abolish the law. Now abolish just means tear down. It means take down. It means destroy. I mean, some of, some, there are some other translations too. I think one of them is destroy or, or take down. Um, it's actually a word used when you're building a building and then you just start to unbuild the building. You just start taking it apart. That's abolishing uh, the law. Jesus is saying, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I, I, I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. So next question is, he didn't come to abolish. What's the law or the prophets? The law or the prophets? Let's spend a second talking about this. The law and the prophets is a shorthand for the entire Old Testament. So if I say, hey, nice wheels, right? I don't mean your actual, well, unless you got new wheels. I, I don't mean your actual wheels, right? What do I mean? Hey, nice wheels, nice car. It's a shorthand for the car. Is that just me? 
Okay, it is just me? Okay, great. Um, The Law and the Prophets is a shorthand for Jesus' Bible at the time, the Hebrew Scriptures, which is what we call the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the Law or the Prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but fulfill. What does it mean to fulfill? Well, Matthew uses the word fulfill six other times before this. Every time, there's an event that took place in Jesus' life, and then Matthew, like, backs up, and he says, hey, by the way, this took place to fulfill what was written by Isaiah, the prophet, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So with fulfilling, fulfilling of the prophets, that kind of makes sense, right? Fulfilling the prophets, it's like, well, the prophets prophesied about the Messiah, and now Jesus is fulfilling that, but what does it mean to fulfill the law? Fulfilling the prophets kind of makes sense. What does it mean to fulfill the law? Well, what is the law? The law is a shorthand for the, actually the, the Hebrew word is Torah. Maybe you've heard that word before. It's a shorthand for the, what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was known as the law. When Jesus says law, don't think, you know, um, how a government, you know, gives laws like a speed limit or something. It's not, it's not that at all. That's depersonalized, and that's um, not in a relationship. The law is a story about what? The, law, the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy, is a story about what? God's relationship with his people. Law in the Old Testament is not so much like, well, I just have to do this because they said so. It's rather a relational dynamic. The same with how a parent gives instruction and guidance and laws to the child. So in the, in the story of Genesis to Deuteronomy, what happens? God chooses Abraham, right, to be a blessing to all the people. Abraham's family grows. They get, go to Egypt. They become enslaved to Egypt. God delivers them through Moses, through his deliverer, brings them out, and he brings them where? To the wilderness, and they go to what? A mountain, Mount Sinai. And there, there is where God makes a covenant, And a covenant isn't like just a legal document like you sign here, you sign here. Rather, the language that's used there is more like a marriage. God wants to be married to his people. This is what the New Testament talks about too. We are the bride of Christ. God wants to be married. So in a marriage, you don't just, you don't say, hey, now I'm married. Now will you please not cheat on me? Like that's just, it's just the natural thing you do. Like obviously I'm not gonna do that. In the same way, what the law was is God saying, I'm covenanting with you I love you, Israel, I love you, and I want what's best for you. So because of that, this is the terms of the agreement. This is the terms of the marriage covenant that we're in here today. So a lot of times, I'm saying all of this because it's very tempting to think of the law as arbitrary or as, um, you know, really oppressive and weird and it's not applicable and why on earth would God give all these laws to his people? He did that because he loves them. In, let's see, this was what, 4,000, Sinai was like 4,000 years ago. In 4,000 years from now, the year will be what, 6,023? If somebody read, say you wrote a letter to your kid, said don't touch the oven. 4,000 years go by. Somebody finds it, reads it, don't touch the oven. Um, 
not a betting man, but I'd be willing to bet there's probably not going to be ovens, or rather, it's going to be like a translation thing. They're going to be a different language, or we might be on a different, I don't know. I'm getting way out of my comfort zone here. But uh, odds are is that ovens might not exist. And so if you read Don't Touch the Oven, you might think, well, that's, ar- that's weird. That's arbitrary. What does that mean? Why would, he, why would the parent do this? Does the parent not love the child? But in, in the context, it's like, what's the point of it? The point of it is what? When I tell a child or when you tell a child, don't touch the oven, the point of it is I love you. I don't want you to burn your hand on this oven. 4,000 years, they're not going to understand that at all unless they do the hard work and figure out the context and all that stuff. So when we think law, we must think loving relationship. We must think loving relationship. Absolutely. So Jesus came to fulfill the law loving relationship in Genesis to Deuteronomy, and the prophets. Paul in Galatians says that the purpose of the law, or I'm sorry, the result of the law was that sin took advantage of the law and it exposed your heart. So the Old Testament is not the law. The Old Testament is a story about how the law didn't work. It's a story about how the people of God need something completely different They need a what? A new heart. Look at this passage from Jeremiah, and this will be up on the screen. Jeremiah is prophesying about this. Israel is in exile. They went into the land, and they didn't obey any of the commandments, and they go into exile, and Jeremiah the prophet is saying this. Look, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. New covenant. Not not the law anymore. Even though the law was a loving relationship and it was for the best of the people, I'm gonna make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I am their husband. Next slide. Instead, this is what the new covenant's gonna be. Is, sorry. I will put my Torah, my law, my instruction, my teaching Where? Within them. And write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest. How will they all know him? For I will forgive their iniquities and never again remember their sin. What's Jesus saying? I'm doing this. This is happening now. I'm not abolishing the Old Testament. I'm just building on it. I'm just fulfilling the point of it. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but rather to fulfill. He goes on, verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Verse 19, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and, te- but whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Look again at verse 18. Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Jesus is, is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. I actually came to fulfill the law. And if you don't believe me, here's how important the law is. That's what he's saying. Like, 
until heaven and earth pass, until all things are accomplished, not the smallest letter or stroke of the letter, which um, some of other translations are like Yoda and something. I think the KJV has the funniest one. Uh, no jot or tittle will depart from the law. Like, I don't think anybody knows what that is, but okay, basically what it is is there's, it, it's the equivalent of like half of a comma, like a comma is really small, or half of an apostrophe, really, really small. That's a whole letter in the Hebrew alphabet, half of a comma. I mean, you're talking like if you are writing and then your pen slips, that's a different word. I know it was an accident, but like that's a whole. So what Jesus is saying is like the minutia detail of the law and the prophets is wildly important until heaven and earth pass away, until all things are accomplished. We'll get to when that is in a second. He keeps going and he kind of ups the ante. He's like, I'm, I'm not here to abolish it. Verse 19, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, breaks one of the least of these commands. Well, what commands? What commands is he talking about? Scholars differ, but I think the answer is, and we'll see this in verse 20, the answer is both the Old Testament and what Jesus is about to say in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to that in a second. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then here's, here's what it looks like. Whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Earlier I said, how do you live a life in the kingdom of heaven. You put Jesus' words to practice. Whoever does his commands, not thinks about them only, not teaches them only, not understands them intellectually only, but who does them. At the end of the sermon, Jesus is going to say, whoever does these words of mine and puts them to practice will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And whoever doesn't will be like a fool who builds his house on the sand. Doesn't just talk about understanding them. He's talking about doing them. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Okay. This is going to pop up quite a few times in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew as a whole, where we read a sentence like this and we say, oh, well, that's impossible. So I guess I'm just going to fall on my knees and raise my hands and ask the Lord for forgiveness because that's impossible. That is a dangerous way of reading the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does not give commands that his people cannot keep. Now, who are these scribes and Pharisees? First of all, who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to his disciples. Who's behind his disciples? This crowd of people that are the spiritual zeros, as one scholar calls them. They're not anybody. So the scribes and the Pharisees are the professional Christians. Scribes was a professional like occupation, like you, it was a job basically. Pharisees was more like a middle class lay person who was really like religious and re was really involved in their church or their synagogue or whatever. So you have these two people and their, pat their, their zeal was, was um, admirable. They wanted to keep the law. They thought the law was good, and it, the law is good, as Paul says, but they wanted to keep it. So imagine Jesus talking to four fishermen, because there's just four disciples at the time, and then a bunch of crowds of, you know, these 
people who are kind of at the outskirts of society. And he says, your righteousness, your doing right things, has to be beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. You know what everybody would say? Pfft, right, right, good, that's funny. That's, I mean, your Beatitudes were already really weird. I don't really get the salt and light thing, but now you're saying that I have to be a better professional Christian than these guys, a professional Jewish leader than these guys? Now, is that what Jesus is saying? No, he's not saying that at all. Why? What is the goal of the law and the prophets? This is a rhetorical question. What is the goal of the law and the prophets? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter seven, verse 12, and this will be on the screen. The goal of the law and the prophets. This is the golden rule. Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Interesting. This is Jesus talking, the Sermon on the Mount. What's the goal, the telos, the end of the law and the prophets? It seems that it's putting the needs of others above the needs of yourself. Next slide. Later in Matthew, Matthew 22, 39 and 40. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to them, love. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with, all your, with everything in you, with all your mind. Next slide. This is the greatest and most important command. The second greatest command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the what? The law and the prophets depend <coughs> hang on these two commands. What's the goal of the law and the prophets? Love. How did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Love. Did the scribes and the Pharisees miss the goal of the law and the prophets? Yes. Why? Because they did not have a heart of love. So therefore, is it possible to be a, 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 a nobody, to be poor in spirit, to be humble, to mourn, and to have a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees? Yes. How? Love. What did the scribes and the Pharisees do? They did the right things, but their heart was not in it. When I was a kid, my mom would always say, you need to obey the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. You guys ever heard this or used this before? I was admittedly a letter of the law kind of a guy. I would, she'd say, take out the trash and I would put it right outside my room. <laughs> Took it out of my room. And she's like, well, that's not what I meant. That's not the spirit of the law. I thought I'd get more laughs from that, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> other times, you know, you, you're, you're uh, very literal, you know, like, oh, well, I could do this. We would go shopping and when I was like a toddler, I would say, well, how many items are you getting? She'd be like, a few. I was like, okay, a few is three. <laughs> and so I would count. I'd be like, well, one, two, three. I was like, mom, that's more than three. Like, that's the letter of the law, when in reality, it's just, that's not the point, right? Take out the trash does not mean put it on the outside of the door. It means put it in the bin, bring the bin to the curb. That's what it means. That's the point. That's the telos. That's the end of the command, right? When, when the commandments talk about uh, not, uh, um, our, our tithing mint and really, really small things, the Pharisees did what? They did that. They were really meticulous about the details. But they neglected 
the poor. They neglected the orphan. They neglected the widows. They neglected the Gentiles. Why? Because they were obeying the letter of the law, but they were not obeying the spirit of the law. Jesus is saying a greater righteousness. You can do the exact same thing as the Pharisees do. But if that's it, then the Pharisees, you have your reward. But if you have a greater righteousness, you're doing some of the same things, but rather you're doing it from a heart posture of love. What does that look like? The next, the next um, six sermons in Matthew will be six examples of what Jesus is talking about. You want a greater righteousness? The law says don't murder. That's fine, right? Like that's, that's the letter of the law if you don't kill somebody. What's the spirit of the law? What's the heart posture? Actually, anger in your heart is the same thing as murder. Jesus isn't abolishing the law, do not murder. He's turning up the volume, saying this is a heart posture. You have heard that it says don't commit adultery. Okay, good, yeah, don't do that. But also, that is just the expression of a deeper heart issue. What Jesus is saying, I tell you, don't even lust after a man or a woman in your heart because that's the same thing as adultery. He talks about divorce in this way. He talks about swearing oaths. He talks about turning the other cheek. He talks about loving your neighbor. He talks about when you pray, what? You should still pray, right? Like he doesn't say don't pray. You should still pray, but just don't do it with the wrong heart posture. The Pharisees do it because they want to be seen. They have their reward. You need to do it. If you truly have a right heart posture in prayer, you don't mind that nobody will ever see you praying. When you give to the poor, don't stop giving to the poor, but just don't do it with like everybody saying, hey, look how much I'm giving to the poor. Just do it. When you fast, Matthew chapter six, don't stop fasting, but when you do it, don't be like, oh, woe is me, I'm fasting, I'm so holy. You have your reward. If people reward you for what you do, that's it. But if you want God's reward, if you want to live in the kingdom of heaven, you do it out of love. You do it with a heart posture, and that is superior righteousness. That is a righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees can't even fathom. It's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. One more example on this. If any of you guys have ever learned an instrument before, you start by learning scales, right? You learn some um, music, you learn how to read the music, and then you start with scales. And it's really clunky and uncomfortable and awkward, and most, you know, people, including myself and some instrument, like you just, you stop after a few months because you're like, this is, this is hard. But if you keep going and you just do your scales over again and over again and every day, and then you do a new scale and every day, and you do it for 30 minutes every day, and then you do it for an hour every day, and then you do that. What's the end of that? A professional piano player, when he sits down after 40 years of playing the piano, he or she sits down to play the piano, what do they start with? Their scales. Now, do they do it as frequently as they did it when they were starting? No, but what was the goal of the scales? The goal of the scales was to familiarize yourself so much with the instruments that you can play these beautiful, beautiful things. What's the goal of the law? to have a new heart. It's not just to, it's not just to keep playing your skin. It's to live in the kingdom of God, to become a person of love, to have your knee-jerk reaction in life be one of patience, one of kindness, one of joy. Not just this meticulous, like, well, I guess I have to do these scales again. It's a loving posture. Now, can we go back to the uh, Venn diagram of the, this might be the fir- fir- very first slide. <clears throat> if you're living in the kingdom of heaven in the top, or you're living in this little middle shaded in area, you're living in the kingdom of heaven, but where are you also living? You're living in the kingdom of earth, which means what? 
there's this tension. Because what do you have in the kingdom of heaven? Peace. Oh, a peace that surpasses understanding. Yet, where are you now? Surrounded by anxiety and chaos. What do you have in the kingdom of heaven? Resurrection power and a promise and a hope that we will be raised one day. What do you have now? Death, decay, disease. What do you have in the kingdom of heaven? Freedom from sin, forgiveness of sins. What do we have now? This constant pull to sin, the temptation that surrounds us on every side. This is what scholars call already, not yet. We are already, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you're in that middle ground. You are already a disciple. You are already in the kingdom of heaven and you feel the tension of not fully yet realizing God's rule and God's reign in your own heart, let alone in the people and the relationships that we have. And so, who is the kingdom of heaven and how do we get this new heart posture? How do we get this new heart? Jeremiah prophesied, I'm gonna write it on their hearts. Ezekiel said, I'm gonna give them a new heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, right? I'm gonna have the law on their hearts. How do we get that? Well, what's Jesus' message? What's John the Baptist's message? Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. What's the Sermon on the Mount's message? Do these things that I'm telling you to do. Jesus gives us a man, right here, Jesus gives us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of heaven. The question is, are you gonna repent and are you gonna do it? At the end of the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus, um, which by the way, next week is Palm Sunday, just a quick little caveat, next week is Palm Sunday and we're gonna stay in Matthew, but we're gonna go to the very end and I think it's gonna be really cool. We're gonna see some parallels. So next week's Palm Sunday, then that next Friday is Good Friday service and it'll be here at 7 p.m. And then the following Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. So we're gonna be in Matthew still, but we're gonna kind of like jump out, fast forward, go to the end, and then come back uh, here in, in the Sermon on the Mount. But all that to say is at the end of, of Matthew, Jesus says he's bringing about a new covenant. He says, this is my new covenant. And what is it? It's no longer a, 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 a written law that sin is gonna take advantage of but rather it's, it's something that is life. This is the blood. It's life. It's giving life to us. And so as we're in this kingdom of heaven now and not yet, this tension arises. And, and, and you feel it in your mind. You feel it in your heart. You feel it in your soul where it's like, I, I have all these promises in the scriptures. I see what life can be like and also I know that it's not there and it's not this defeatist like, oh, I'll never get there or, or I'll never be able to have a patient reaction or a loving reaction. No, that's not it at all. When you repent, Jesus does what? He fills you with himself. He gives you that new heart. He removes your heart of stone, your dead heart, and he gives you himself. So that what? When you open your eyes, when your eyes are open, this is why we have this imagery of eyes, when your eyes are open, you see the world differently. You see people differently. You see your relationships with your family differently. You see your job differently, your schooling differently. Everything changes. It's like driving on the left side of the road in Ankeny, Iowa. Everything's different. 
because Jesus has given you himself. So every week, the reason why we do communion every week is because we need to remind ourselves of this. We so easily forget. The number one repeated command in all the scriptures is remember. That's what we're doing. So at this time, I, I'm gonna pray, and then when I'm done praying, I wanna invite you guys to come up, take the elements, and we're going to remember together this new covenant that we've been given. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.